All right, so we have officially wrapped up our study on soteriology, but that was kind of a big study, and soteriology is a pretty deep subject. Uh, I know some of you guys have notes going back a couple of weeks, and that's a good thing. Uh, if you do, maybe even if you don't, why don't you just go back and glance through those notes, see if you have any thoughts or questions on stuff we've gone over in the last probably two months on soteriology, rack your brain, um, thinking about how it is that we're saved, why we're saved, the, the means and method by which we're saved, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, any thoughts or questions on soteriology because it is important and there have been many times where we've kind of been crunched for time, we haven't had time to really address everything, so is there anything that's been non at you, anything you want to throw out there before we move on to our next study? Or even beyond soteriology, anything else that we've been studying that hasn't quite landed that maybe we can go back and address and review before we move on? All right. Keep thinking about it. Again, if you have notes, keep glancing through. And I know that in my Bible and in a lot of the books I read, I will write like a big question mark off to the side and Question marks don't always mean the same. A question mark in my Bible isn't equivalent to a question mark in a theology book. A question mark in a theology book is like, dude, what are you thinking? How could this be accurate, right? Whereas a question mark in my Bible is like, I don't get this. I need to wrestle through this and, and comprehend this. How can this be? Um, so it's good to be asking questions, and we certainly want to be seeking to answer those questions if we are at all able. So don't feel bad about bringing those questions. Um, a good thing. Better than keeping them a secret for sure. Alright, so we're going to be talking about ecclesiology today. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And uh, specifically we're going to be talking about Israel and the church. And today we probably will only be talking about Israel. I don't see us really getting past that. Um, but to start off we have this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, with a U, we may support and strengthen it. If those who are Christ refrained, even for a generation, from numbering themselves with his people, there would be no visible church, no ordinances maintained, and I fear very little preaching of the gospel." If those who are Christ refrained, even for a generation, from numbering themselves with his people. Those two things don't really work together, right? If you are his, then you will number yourself with his people. Um, a Christian in isolation certainly should be questioned as to whether or not they are truly in Christ. Because if we are in Christ, we're going to have a love for the brethren, right? So the church is important to Christ, it should be important to us as well. Yes? Can we go back to the first part of that? Yes. Not believing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. You have a problem with that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did too. I'm Why? Yeah. He, he loves Israel too. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, good. And what else? Well, he makes it sound good. That the church is dependent 
on us. It's, it's very much man-centered phraseology there, which yeah. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about the fact that the Spirit of God is what creates, maintains, and fulfills the church. It's not our yeah, to suggest that if man were to isolate himself from the church, then these things wouldn't be maintained. The visible church, the ordinances, um, and preaching of the gospel. That, yeah, I certainly took some issues with that quote, but I think what he's getting at is that the church is important to God and it should be important to us. Um, like you were saying before we got started, it's good to find the perfect use of a word and to employ that so that people who are listening have the same understanding as the person who's communicating. So, yeah, I think that's probably what he was trying to get across, that church well, should be important to us because it's important to God. Yeah. God doesn't need us. <laughs> yep. God created his own. And he'll be content with that also. Yeah. He was well aware of that. Knowing that, you know, it's our participation. We can hear God enough to participate in what he's doing. And be part of the church, the body of believers. Mm-hmm. So it's uh knowing Spurgeon and really have the right and he's quite happy with God. That's pretty orthodox, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And he definitely spoke a lot, so it wasn't always room for that precision of speech. Um, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, right? And one of the songs that we're going to be singing this morning uh, is titled and goes throughout and says, Yet not I, but Christ in me. So that same kind of concept. God doesn't need us, um, but we get to join in and be a part of what he's doing. That kind of goes back even to what we were talking about last week in sanctification, that he is the one who's doing the work. And yet we still have a, a responsibility in it. Yet, not I, but Christ in me, right? So. Well, and I think that maybe what Spurgeon was keying on is that when Christians don't visibly support the church and are not salt and light, you know, you get uh, their... I mean, you look at you look in Europe. I was talking to Walker about this yesterday. You look in Europe, and you have entire nations where they have these beautiful cathedrals mm-hmm. that are, in essence, abandoned. Yeah. All they are is historical landmarks. They're nothing more. So, I mean, I. And he did. The, the U.S. The U.S. Church has done something even worse and has perverted God's word blasphemously. So it'd be much better not talking any churches. I'm not talking the local church. I'm talking the general American church. So yeah. yeah, he was careful to distinguish and to say that there would be no visible church if this wasn't taking place. So he recognizes and understands that Christ, when he said, talking to Peter, he said, "Well, this is the church. I will build my church, and upon." this statement, I think, um, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So the church isn't going anywhere, the right. invisible universal church, right? But 
there have been visible churches who have, which have died out all over the place and uh, don't exist today because people haven't really uh, loved and cherished the church as God himself has. Well, yeah, and expounding on that, I said, you know, if God's spirit does not find finds a hardened and embittered people that will not worship him, like in Don't the remove their States, candlestick. He's, he's going to go where people are going to listen. You know, he's going to go to Africa and South America. And it, it would not shock me at all if that's... It doesn't shock me at all that that's where the fastest growth in the church is. But, of course, there's also... Yeah. Imposters. Yes. That's right. Sorry. All right. Any other thoughts on that Spurgeon quote? <laughs> Jerry's got... Enough already. Plenty. Enough already. All right. Ecclesiology. <laughs> it is very important that we study the ecclesia of God. Ecclesia is a Greek word for church. Um, but it, as we will look at, uh, refers to things even beyond just the church, the called out assembly of God. Before we understand all the intricate details of the church, we must understand God's first ecclesia, Israel. Are we the same? Are we different? Any initial thoughts? Are we, the church, the same as Israel, or are we different? It's a big theological question with massive a very simple answer. implications. Yeah, and what a, is the simple it's answer? Yes or no, man. <laughs> <laughs> we can go out here for yeah. No, we're not Israel in that sense. Okay. Overall sense, we are. But we are grafted into... <laughs> We are grafted into the faith of Abraham. We are grafted onto the tree where wild, all the branches grafted onto the... Romans 11. Yeah. And they'll be hitting that in the Romans class eventually. They're taking a break for this hermeneutic series and they'll be <coughs> picking up in chapter 9. So they'll eventually get there. But that's yeah, a, a big question with massive implications. Yes? Good answer would be just, just go back and watch all our other sessions before this last three months. Yeah, well, that's dealing with salvation. Um, right. And this is trying to address how does that relate to Israel. Where are we coming? Yeah. yeah, and so today we're going to go back and we're actually going to look at Israel and how Israel was saved and how Israel was established and became God's ecclesia. Ecclesia means gathering or, or congregation, his chosen, called out people. And they certainly were that. And today the church is God's chosen, gathered, called out people. Um, but... We are not Israel. There needs to be that distinction made. But there is some relationship there, like Andy was talking about, and like is mentioned in Romans 11, we are grafted into uh, the olive tree to Israel. Walker. So in Revelation, you know, it says God will come down and pick up, what was it, 144,000 uh, Israelites? Right? Uh, he will, yeah, so, set them apart to right. be his... His witnesses. So are those the like actual Israelites or are they the, like modern day ecclesia? Um, well it actually distinguishes and it says twelve thousand from each tribe. So you'd have to really spiritualize things to say that it's his modern ecclesia rather than the part of Judah or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be going beyond the text. Yeah. So we don't want to do that. So yeah, I think that's referring to ethnic Israel. That's a term that 
you'll probably be hearing around here a little bit going through this series and as I said as they're going through the Romans class and hopefully you guys can find time throughout the week to listen to what they're going through because they're covering good material over there too so um, it'd be good to find some point in your week where you're able to kind of return to church in your mind and listen to that Romans class and surely you'll hear that phrase ethnic Israel talking about those who are Jewish by by nature there of Hebrew descendants. No. <laughs> Is that the very simple answer you were thinking of? That was it. All right. That's a big no, right? That's curious. <laughs> was Israel the church of the Old Testament? No. But they were God's called out congregation of the Old Testament. That's we have to recognize the distinction there. They were not the church, but they were God's chosen people. And is the church the Israel of the New Testament? Again, no, we're not. There's a distinction there. And that is, um, they're going through a, a hermeneutics class. And that really changes your hermeneutic. If you're reading through the Old Testament and you're seeing the church as you're reading, then you're going to come to all kinds of different conclusions. And if you're reading in the New Testament, you're thinking, well, everything that God said to Israel in the Old Testament, all those promises, all those uh, things that he laid out for the church, or for Israel, that's for the church. Again, you're going to come to a radically different understanding of what the author is trying to communicate. So, all goes back to authorial intent. What is that author, both the capital A and lowercase author, the Holy Spirit himself, as he's guiding along the apostles and prophets who are writing, what are they trying to communicate to their original readers? And how does that apply to us? How do we take the principles that they're trying to communicate and apply them to us here in Pacing, Utah in 2021? Um, this answer to this question really affects how we look at our Bible. Jerry, do you have something? No, I'm waiting uh, for the, I'm holding my breath for the next slide. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible clearly distinguishes between the two. And we'll hit this here in the next couple of weeks. First Corinthians 10.32 distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles and then uh, throws in the church as well. And remember that problem I told you I have with my Bible last week? It's no small issue. <laughs> I was in 1 Corinthians 4 thinking I was in 1 Corinthians 10. But it says, um, this verse beforehand is key uh, to the whole book of 1 Corinthians and hopefully to our lives. Whether you then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then immediately after that it says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So we see that Paul there, again, as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, is making a distinction between the Jews and the Greeks and the church. The church is a new entity in God's program. However, Israel has continued to exist over the last two millennia. So just because God has kind of moved his, his focus and we are in the what's called the time of the Gentiles and his primary focus is on us rather than the, the Israelites, rather than the Jewish people as a whole. It doesn't mean that he is done with Israel. I remember growing up, I was probably 10 or 11, and my dad said to me, you know, whenever I'm struggling with my faith and I'm, I'm doubting God, I just look to Israel, and I see Israel, and I'm rejuvenated and 
just realize God's faithfulness that he has promised Israel um, 4,000 years ago that they would be a, a people, a nation, and even today, despite their, their lack of size and um, what from a world perspective seems like weakness, they are still a thriving nation, just proving the, the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And the world tried to destroy them. Yeah, over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, don't you think the underlying issue is that they rejected God? Rejected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He came to be the Messiah as he was predicted and prophesied. He killed all the prophets, as Christ said. And the priests, anyone that talked of the truth of the Word of God, what God was doing. And then they came to Christ and they killed him. Yeah. So there was not all, obviously, but there was a massive rebellion against God. Yeah, in so large part, they refused their Messiah, right? And that's what we were looking at earlier in the first part of 1 Corinthians 10, how we are to learn from Israel. That's um, how I've summarized that whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 10, to learn from Israel. And God's kind of, or Paul, again, as he's carried along by God, the Holy Spirit is going back and saying, look at Israel and all these mistakes that they made and how they've been brought along and carried along by God. And yet they rebelled and they turned away. And that's just the nature of man. Right. But especially looking at Israel, we can see so vividly because we are able to look outside of ourselves. Right. It's easier to see sin and failure and shortcoming in somebody else rather than ourselves, though it's there. But we can look at Israel and we can see, okay, God gave them a chance. He gave them an opportunity, and they failed. And he gave them a chance, an opportunity, and they failed. Especially in the book of Judges, right? This whole cycle of the Judges, how God sent somebody to come in and redeem this group, this people, and to be their military leader. And they did what they thought was right in their own eyes, and they fell. And then God sent them a judge to lift them up and redeem them, and they fell. And just over and over and over again, that's just the nature of man. Mr. Bowman, do you have something? Maybe I'll just save it for the end. Maybe I'll forget it by the end. <laughs> but I'll just say, you know, I personally have to confess, be very frustrated and hard-hearted towards our brothers who do confuse the two. There are so many prominent teachers that still do confuse it, but, but you do have to remember that the Jews, when they were crucifying Jesus, they specifically stated his blood be on us and our children. And, and certainly what God allowed to happen and predicted would happen to Jerusalem when they you know, destroyed Israel and the, the, the nation and the temple and all of that in 70 AD. That's still ongoing. But, but you know, but what irks me is that I was born in 1948 when the nation was mer totally miraculously mm -hmm. in front of the whole world reestablished, not by human beings, because there was, there was massive opposition to that. There was huh. massive world opposition to that, along with being attacked as soon as the, the thing was read, and yet they survived, and they survived today in spite of themselves. So it is. Yeah. There just isn't room in our time for people to misunderstand that. When you read the, if you read the Old Testament, it's so clear he, he knew this was happening and he had a plan. And it's, well, thank you for doing this. Yeah. And, and having a 
right understanding. <laughs> that would be a problem if I didn't, right? But if you <laughs> you really want to delve in, and I would suggest you actually do, um, and really understand this distinction between Israel and the church. Um, again, these next three chapters that um, they're going to be studying in the Romans class are going to be vital and essential. So listen to those, but you don't have to wait around for that because that's going to be a minute. So it'd be good if you went home this week because next week we're going to be really diving in and looking at the distinction between Israel and church. This week we're just kind of looking at the history of Israel. But go and read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and see how, um, like Andy mentioned, the church has been grafted into Israel. Israel is there and established. All throughout those chapters there is a distinction between the church and between Israel. Um, and I was glad to hear Jerry call these other people our, our brothers because they are our brothers in Christ. But they do make this vital um, meshing together, I guess. Um, it's a, an error. It's an error. Yeah. And, and they think that the church is Israel. And once again, the, all those Old Testament promises that God made to Israel are applied to the church. Um, and you, for me, I just I stop and I think, well, what does that mean about my God? If my God is making these promises to group A, and then he comes along and says, well, here's group B, and we're just going to say that those are actually for you, that, in my mind, uh, causes some real issues with the, the person and the character of God. But they, they were able to reconcile that in their mind somehow, and I know that they wouldn't appreciate me painting them in that way, so I don't want to like falsely paint somebody or say that they hold to a position that they don't, but it's not something I can reconcile and make okay in my mind for sure. But it makes Daniel and Revelation hard to understand. Yeah. And like you said, harking back to, to 70 AD and what happened in 70 AD is really vital and it, there's kind of a convergence of understanding as to what happened in 70 AD. Is that just a picture of what Jesus said was going to happen that they will destroy this temple and um, these other things are going to come to pass in the end. Was that just him saying, well, this is going to happen, so look at what's going to happen in the end? Or was that really um, the end? And how you understand Israel and church is going to play a large role in how you understand not just who we are as a church and how we read our Bible, but what's going to happen in the end times. If we are um, meant to build up the kingdom and usher in the kingdom, or is Jesus going to come back and take home his church and rapture his church and bring them back to, to usher in the kingdom himself. So all that to say, this is a, a vital distinction between different camps in Christianity. So when it's important. There's, if I may, there's two kind of ditches you can fall into, right? Always. There's, right. And At least. <laughs> major ditches, right? I, I'm not going to box it in like Jeremy does sometimes, but on the one hand, there's conflating the church with Israel and that the promises that God gave to Israel are going to apply to the church, right? Um, and maybe an over-fascination with Hebrew and the Jewish people. And then on the other end of it, there's the ones that are like, well, Israel doesn't matter at all, right? That the ones that try, you know, antinomianism that try to extract, you know, two thirds red of the letter Bible. Christians. Yeah, red letter Christians. You know, there's there's sort of two extremes there, 
you know, it, it, there, is, there is no way to read the Bible with any kind of accurate hermeneutic and say that Israel is not going to exist to the end, that our Savior wasn't a Jewish man. Okay, I mean, it's really clear that he's, he's you know, the, the son of David, that there is a, a familial line that he falls into, and they're ethnic Jews, mm -hmm. right? If you're, if you're, in other words, if you're anti-Semitic, I, I do not understand how you could be Christian. That's, that's my point, I guess. It's inconsistent. It's, it's completely inconsistent. Yep. Yeah. And looking into the future, there is a time of Jacob's trouble, right? Which is focused on Jacob, on Israel. Remember, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Um, we'll go ahead and get into that. Let's look at this quote from Martha <coughs> Mayhew. says, Though God is working through the international church in this present age, and though the church shares in the blessings of the new covenant in the future, God will again turn his attention to the nation of Israel in fulfillment of his promises to them. So he has promised them, um, as we'll see here, uh, a number of things in Genesis 12 and 15, um, and 17 and 22. And if he is, as he is, a God of truth, a God who keeps his word, then those things must come to, to pass, right? Um, so let's get in and look at that real quick. Um, it says we don't have the calendar space for Israelology, um, so we're going to kind of do some Israelology here, um, mix it into our uh, ecclesiology. So if you guys have more questions, more thoughts, maybe we will go a little bit deeper on Israel and how Israel relates to the church. But once again, it's of vital importance to realize and understand the different covenants that God has made throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New Covenant that we read about in Hebrews and other places in the Bible. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Genesis 12. What's unique and special about Genesis 12? It's the first book of the Bible. Well, it's not the first chapter in the Bible. What's unique about the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible? Call of Abraham. All right. Well, good. Let's look at that. Will somebody read those first four verses of that chapter for us, please? The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your mother and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of earth on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. All right. And just to uh, add to that, verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham. Or to Abram and said to your descendants I will give this land so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him so it's uh, made to his descendants where is that, did is go ahead give to them eternal or is it just as we know it is given to them when they cross back over and they take the land I think it's 
in eternity. I don't think they, they possess that land right now. I don't think they've ever really possessed all the land that God had promised to them. Um, but I think they will one day because it has been promised to them. So it's, it's both in coming and then even more futuristic. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they've actually possessed that land to this day, but they will. Um, where did Abraham come from? There in Genesis 12. Ur of Chaldeans. Chaldeans. And what Iraq. promises? Yeah. Iraq. What promises was he given from God in verses 1 through 3? Let's break those down a little bit. How do we understand those promises? His son would inherit the earth. His son would get the land. Earth. <laughs> yeah. Um. Land, yeah, there's the nation, nation. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, basically those that curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. Yeah. So, verse 2, I will make you a great nation, right? And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So, uh, like Jerry said, you can break it down into there's the land that we talk about in verse 7 it was promised to his descendants, right? And then there's the the seed, the fact that he would be made into a great nation, uh, the first part of verse 2. So he would have a, an abundance of descendants. And then I will bless you. So land, seed, and blessing are the way that that is typically broken up. The three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant are the land, the seed, and the blessing. The three parts that God had promised to Abram. God promises to bless his lineage and to bring about worldwide blessing through it. And you see that at the, the end of, what was it, verse 2? Oh, verse 3. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so remember, he's talking right now to the, the father of the Hebrew people, right? To the father of Jewish people who even in the New Testament they're hearkening back to and saying, well, we are children of Abraham. He is our father. Um, and yet, before the nation of Israel has even been established, God has in view all the nations of the world, all the families of the earth, not just Abram. Uh, Jerry, do you have something? Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, questions on Genesis 12? That is a important chapter, talking about that establishment of that covenant. That's the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Yeah. And the then first, it's the reiterated. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's jump forward to chapter 15, where it is, again, uh, really established and, and codified. Genesis 15, look at 17 through 21. Who can read that for us? Got it. All right. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Why don't you go back and start in 12. Okay. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation and they, that they serve 
and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All right, so before that, they had taken different animals and cut them in half and set them on different sides. Uh, they're getting ready to, to cut this covenant and put turtle doves on different sides. So it's a big bloody mess. And in verse 12, it said that uh, while, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. So to set the scene again, different cut up bloody animals. Um, that was typical for the way they were to cut a covenant to even just amongst men. If Andy and I wanted to make a covenant, I'm gonna sell you this plot of land. We would take a, a heifer, cut it in half, set the two sides over here. We'd walk through this heifer together and we'd say, hey dude, if I break my covenant, then I'm gonna be as this heifer. I'm gonna be cut, I'm gonna be uh, dead. And same with you, if you don't show up, you don't pay me the money, then you're gonna be just like this dead, cut up heifer, right? So that's what happened uh, in the first part of chapter 15, verse 12. Abraham's now asleep as this covenant is about to be cut. Go ahead and read that passage in 17 through 21. When the sun was going down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the... Parasites. <laughs> Parasites. <laughs> the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. <laughs> I could have had you stop a couple verses before, huh? <laughs> they're all dead, it's okay. Those guys and those guys. Yeah, they're not around to hear you butcher their names. They don't care. It's all right. <laughs> all right, so God made a promise to Abram. Um, he was going to give them, give him and his descendants all this land, right? And once again, the importance of glancing back at verse 12 and seeing that it was Abram who was asleep. And verse 17 is kind of different, right? There's this flaming torch being passed between these pieces. That's uh, God kind of taking on this visible form for a moment. Uh, he's the one and the only one who's going through these pieces of these animals. He's the only one who is cutting this covenant as the one who um, it's dependent upon. So it's an unconditional covenant. It's not dependent upon Abram in any way. And as we look at different covenants all throughout the Bible, that's one of the, the vital aspects we need to know. Is this a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? And this Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. It's conditioned only on God, not on Abram at all. So you said that you, if you and him walk through it together, you two are making a covenant, right? Yeah, so we're... So Shaking hands, pretty much. We're signing a contract. God walked through it, and Abram walked through it. And no, Abram was asleep. Oh, right. So just God walked through it, uh -huh. and he made a covenant with the people. Or with Abram. He okay. said, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless your your people. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this seed, this blessing. We looked at in chapter 12, now in chapter 15. And he's saying that it's on me. I'm the one who's going to show up. I'm the one who's going to deliver. Um, it's it's going to happen. Hebrews 6 says that God swore by himself because there's nobody greater to swear by. Um, when you're 
making an oath or an agreement uh, growing up, you're playing around in the schoolyard right and you say well I, I swear my mom's grave or you know something stupid like that um you're saying well i promise it's going to happen i make this promise something that's that's greater than me something that's important to me and there's nothing greater or more important than god so he said i swear by myself because what else is there to swear by um he tells us to make our yes yes and our no no to be consistent and honest and that's how he is he's not a son of man that he should lie or He's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He is completely distinct and unique. And he, in his uh, holy, perfect character, he made this covenant without it being dependent in any way upon Abraham. All right. Uh, what promise does God give to Abram in this passage? What distinct aspect of the it's promise do we see here? The promise is postponed. Scheduled up ahead. It's not immediate. Okay. Yeah, so it's for your descendants, right? But he promises the land again. All right. Yeah, so it's focused on this land that he's going to possess and his descendants will inherit and possess, right? And again, it's very specifically defined. Yeah, all these different nations we can't pronounce, right? The Perizzite, the Gergeshite, and the Hittite, and um, Hivite. This area is going to be yours. So, yeah, he wouldn't have any, um, there was no ambiguity as to, well, can I go this far or this far? What is it exactly you're giving me? Uh, it's as if God were to say, okay, well, you can have Santaquin and Payson and Salem and Elkridge. And it's very kind of clear cut what he and his descendants will possess. <laughs> kind of clear cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back to the importance of language and precision, right? All right. And what is significant about the way that God instituted this covenant? Uh, once again, it was unconditional, right? He and he alone was the one to establish it. All right. Jump forward to chapter 17. Chapter 17, 6 through 11. Who can read that for us? Can. All righty. All right, um, and back in verse 5, it says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Again, we see um, it's pretty broad in extent, right? Go ahead with verse 6. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as, ever, as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant um, between me and you. All right. So what promises are reiterated in these verses, and then what new promises do we see here? I will make nations and kings from you is the reiterated one. Okay. 
I don't know if we saw kings before, but yeah, it was focused on the, the land that he would get, right? I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And so that's, that's kind of going back to what we saw before, right? That it's to your descendants and those who come after you. And Jerry, to your question before, it says it's a, an everlasting covenant, right? So it's not just like, okay, well, they're going to go in, they're going to possess his land for a month, and then God can say, okay, well, I, I fulfilled what I promised, so you guys can be gone now. Um, well, I'm, we, I'm off the hook. This is why the Judaizers in Galatians were trying to impose circumcision. I mean, it's, it's the oldest line of covenant between God and the Israelites mm -hmm. was circumcision. And bringing it to modern day, why people today think, well, it's important that we baptize our, our babies because baptism has kind of overtaken the sign of circumcision. And we need to include everybody in our family because we are covenantal people who are in this covenant with God. Um, but we, we don't take that understanding. Um, we don't think that baptism has replaced circumcision. We don't think that um, we are replacing Israel. And so once again, this understanding of distinction between Israel and the church will really have vast implications on how we do church. And that's why we don't baptize our, our infants, because we don't think that we are in this covenantal agreement with God the way that Israel was. Well, the circumcision that we as Christians have is not a circumcision of the flesh. Yeah. It's, it's something that is, God is the one who sees the heart. God mm -hmm. is the one that takes my heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh. That's the covenant that we have between us through Christ. Yeah. yeah, it was just an outward, uh, visible, somewhat visible. I don't understand how visible that was and how, <laughs> how it was really a sign of their being set apart and distinct as God's people, but... When I was, I was talking to Walker yesterday about, he went to a, was it a rave? It was a dance, it was a dance thing. It was a rave thing at the steak house, right? Oh, right. We should talk after this, Walker. Yeah, not, not that kind of steak, not the good kind of steak. Anyway. Was it a good kind of rave? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Anyway. Yeah, we should talk. But I was, I was talking to him about LDS theology, and I said, you know, Paul was condemning the Galatians for one work, circumcision, mm -hmm. one. The LDS people have taken and added layers and layers and layers of works, you know. And, but the point is that Paul was saying even one work, one, is enough to... It perverts the gospel. Per it perverts the gospel, absolutely. There is no work we can do, period. Yeah. If it's by grace, it's no longer by works. If it was, then grace would no longer be grace. You're changing the definition of grace. If you say that you have to work for it, that's not grace. That's not a gift. Right. At the end of verse 8, the very firm statement made also, I will be the God. Will. Right? <clears throat> yeah, so... Again, we are distinct in our theology because we see that there is a future for Israel. And there are a lot of people who don't see a future for ethnic Israel, again, um, those who are natural descendants of Abraham, because they think, well, we are the descendants of Abraham, so what happens to the ethnically Jewish people it is irrelevant. But no, God made a, a promise to 
Abraham, who is a father of the Jews, and so we should expect there to be a fulfillment of that promise. All right, what was the purpose of circumcision? I think we kind of covered that. That was a, a sign of the covenant that God had made with his people, right? They are to be distinct and set apart. There is something unique about these people because they belong to God. All Israel went into slavery in Egypt for 430 years. So we're kind of jumping forward here a little bit, right? Um, they were without hope in this foreign land. So God made these promises. He reiterated these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, look, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this seed, this descendants, right? There are going to be nations that come from you. I'm going to bless your descendants. And then uh, you'll remember that Joseph gets sold off into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt. And for 430 years, they were in Egypt, enslaved under Pharaoh. New Pharaoh came along who didn't know and respect and honor Joseph and enslaved those people. And so this kind of takes us in a really fast overview way through the book of Genesis and up into Exodus as we look at the, the timeline of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's jump there real quick. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 26. That's a slightly larger passage. Will somebody read that for us, please? I got it. All right. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. All right, read that one again. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. Hmm. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation for those who love him and keep his commandments. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Hmm. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which you swore your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness and will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, 
The Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts will grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hands so that you will make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is, in, that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the man. You shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. All right. So here we see God's deliverance of Israel revealed and his sovereignty and his faithfulness. So he is going to deliver his people um, and take care of them. Uh, just reading through that, verse 15 is something that wouldn't be uh, uncommon to hear turning on your television to TBN or one of those other Christian pseudo-Christian sites, right? It says, The Lord will remove from you all sickness, and He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but He will lay them on all who hate you. Uh, if we don't have a proper hermeneutic, proper distinction between Israel and church, and we could take that and apply that to ourselves, which many people do, um, just stuff like that, again, which really highlights the importance of understanding Israel is Israel, and the church is a church. And even though Israel was God's ecclesia, his called out chosen people of the Old Testament, that doesn't make us the same group. Even though we are called out, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood unto the Lord, that doesn't make us equivalent to Israel. Israel should have had supreme confidence to obey Yahweh, right? He's telling them all through this, um, I'm the one who brought you out. You remember? Like, you guys were trapped in, in Egypt, and I brought you up out of there. You remember that? And um, again, as we've looked at in 1 Corinthians 10, that he led them as a cloud, and he opened up the, the Red Sea for them, and he did all these miraculous, marvelous things for them. They had every right and reason and purpose to trust in Yahweh as the supreme one, and yet they didn't. Now, remember that God had made a, a covenant with Abram, Abraham, and he said that he will bless his people. Um, he will give them land and seed and blessing. And several times throughout books like Deuteronomy and these uh, historical narratives, we see where God is talking to a specific generation of people. And he's saying, you guys could be that generation who goes in and possesses that land. And I, I promise it to your father, and it's going to happen for his descendants at some point. That could be you. Or if you're disobedient and unfaithful, then it could not. It could be some other generation. It's going to happen at some point. And um, we see different moments where um, this unconditional promise uh, could be applied to a generation if they're faithful to obey their God. Israel entered the land, but maintained their stubborn ways. Hundreds of years of judges commenced. And we looked at that, or talked about that a little bit, how 
there were these cycles of the judges. Um, let's look at 1 Samuel 8. This is probably as far as we're going to get today. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Will somebody read those verses for us, please? 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. <laughs> but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. All right. And Samuel did indeed warn them. He said, you guys are going to be paying for his kids to go to school pretty much, right? You guys are going to be giving him all your money and looking at him for protection. He's going to take it and he's going to build his own kingdom, do whatever he wants. And you guys are just going to be his subjects. And they said, that's all right. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king so we can be like our neighbors, so we should be going in and dispossessing and taking what is rightfully ours from. And God said, all right, you guys want to be wicked and idolatrous and be like the other nations, and go ahead. And that didn't really work out too well for him, did it? Yeah, and we'll look at that a little bit next week and uh, finish up the, the history of Israel and how God has established and brought Israel to where they are today. And then we'll tie in where the church is and the distinctions between Israel and the church. Any questions before we wrap up? I have a weird one. So, currently, still, most, um, most of Israel does not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So, if someone uh-huh. of the Jewish faith does profess faith in Christ, do they then become part of the church or do they remain part of Israel? Yes. <laughs> they become part of the church. I mean, they're not going to lose their their genetic heritage, right? They're still so like Jewish, but yeah. Yeah, so they are part of the church and um, it's kind of weird because they're part of that natural branch, right? What's your homework? To read Romans 9, 10, and 11. So in Romans 11, we see Israel portrayed as a, an olive tree. So they are part of that natural olive tree, uh, the descendants of Abram, who God originally made that covenant with. And um, it says that we, being Gentiles, are able to be grafted into that, that olive tree. I'm a city boy. I don't know anything about grafting in. I've just heard from this passage how you can like take branches from one tree and put it into another. But you guys being down here, Utah Countyans, I'm sure you might be a little bit more familiar with that but he goes on and says uh israel being natural branches how much easier is it for them to be grafted back in so yeah they become a part of the church even though they were already originally part of 
that covenant people, the Jewish people of God. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, male, female. We are all one in Christ. So they are not um, unable to, to be a part of the church and to embrace the, the grace of Christ. Yes? I just want to know how amazing Joseph was because he was the second in command in Egypt. And yet when he died, he said to his brothers, I'm about to die. God will surely take you and bring you up from this land to the land which he had promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And made him promise to carry his bones back. I mean, here he was, the ruler. There's no reason, there's nothing visible whatsoever for him to think that they should not be fantastic. Yeah. He could have appointed one of his brothers as well. And it was just an amazing thing that he would look beyond his own perfect, utterly amazing circumstances to say, this is temporary. Yeah, he had a great opportunity to say, we're going to establish our kingdom here. God has exalted me here. We're going to come here, and, and this is going to be our future place. But no, he hearkened back to that promise of God and said, no, those nations, those nations that Logan doesn't know how to pronounce, those are the ones that God has promised to us, right? So we're going to go back there, take my bones with you when you go. All right, let's go spend some time in fellowship. Um, worship our God. Get your sheds and parasites. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>